I'd like to welcome David Graeber. Um, if you have any comments or any responses to any of this, we look forward to hearing you. So, so uh, let me just go through these one at a time a little bit and then see if I can pull them together in some kind of interesting way. Um, first of all, thanks so much for having me here. Um, it's kind of a fun conversation. Um, and um, I was saying the challenge of doing this kind of conference, I was chatting with some of the organizers beforehand, is how to make our discussion cumulative because the danger um, is that you know everybody's got their own little hobby horse or their idea and they just throw it all out there and I guess that's my job now uh, <laughs> is to frame it in such a way that we can actually build and get someplace we weren't before uh, on the next one so um, let me throw out some ideas about that um, when I was first when we were talking about knowledge as currency and the university's marketplace the first thing that came to mind was an argument about knowledge versus ideas um, there are those who have pointed out that um, if you're talking about values, ideas actually work in a very different way than uh, we think because ideas, they're the opposite of a scarce resource. They're not an economic value in the classic sense uh, because the more people have them, the more they're worth. So, you know, rather than being spread too thin and declining in value, in fact, they go up. Um, I thought about that, and I thought, well, yeah, that's true, but it's not true of all aspects of the knowledge economy, is it? Um, in fact, there's a tension there. And actually, the first thing when I thought of that, because that was going around, there was kind of a buzz around that idea a few years ago, sort of, Ops was reviving Gabriel Tarte, if anybody knows this kind of stuff. Um, and everybody's saying, yeah, knowledge economy works exactly the opposite of the conventional economy. But then I thought, well, that's not really true. That's true of some things, but not others. Um, in fact, I was reminded of this story about the, the origin of the Sibylline books, which are, those are the prop, uh, prophecies that we're going to tell all future Roman history. Um, and the story was the king, I think it was Numa Pompilius, came to visit the Sibyls of these three giant books of prophecies where the entire future history of Rome was included. Um, uh, I said, can I buy these off you? They said, sure, it'll be a thousand gold pieces. I said, what? That's ridiculous. That's, you know, ha uh, half my treasury. So the Sibyl said, okay, and God took one of the three books, threw it on the fire, and said, then for the two of them, 2,000 gold pieces. <laughs> he said, well, that's ridiculous. It's even more for less books. I said, okay. <laughs> the second one on the fire said, just for the one, 3,000 gold pieces. And he said, okay, it's a deal. <laughs> um, so, so different types. So I think we should make a distinction between knowledge and ideas. Ideas, if they disseminate, they go up in value. Whereas knowledge is a, uh, or can be maintained as a scarce resource. And a lot of the job of universities is to keep it that way. And like villains like Elsevier are the most extreme example of that. But the interesting thing is the tension between the need to have ideas to produce knowledge and the need to make those common. Because if you don't share ideas, you can't actually produce knowledge. And then the, uh, 
and then privatizing the knowledge once you get it. So there's this kind of reverse dynamic that you need to create a kind of communism of sharing uh, an intellectual commons of some kind or another in order to be able to produce, produce the value which you can then turn into a scarce resource. And a lot, I think that's a lot of what universities are doing today, playing that, that dynamic, keeping things just open enough that you can continue to produce ideas. I personally think that the bureaucratization of the university has produced a situation where they're stabbing them, themselves in the foot for, in that regard. Um, because the direction of re research has become so bureaucratized. Or it's not just that it's become bureaucratized, it was always bureaucratized. I was thinking about this, I was thinking about why is it that all those great scientific inventions we were all expecting to see, I mean, maybe we have got the robot factories, but we never got the flying cars, you know, the teleportation and the Mars bases and all that stuff. Um, you know, past generations like got the stuff they were expecting to get when they read science fiction. <laughs> People in 1900, they got the stuff. They got the rockets and the planes. And, uh, why didn't we? And um, and I think a lot of it has to do with bureaucratization of the academy. You know, if you want to actually create knowledge um, or create unexpected breakthroughs. The obvious thing to do is to get a bunch of smart people, give them whatever resources they need, and just leave them alone for a while. And you know, um, most of them will turn up nothing, and maybe 10% will come up with something even they didn't expect. The way if you want to absolutely guarantee that innovation does not take place, uh, what you do is you get those same people and say you won't get any resources unless you compete with each other all the time to convince me that you already know what you're going to create, which is what the system we have now in universities. You know, pretty much makes it sure you're not going to have any major breakthroughs. Um, but that comes from the incorporation, not just of bureaucracy, but of a particular sort of business-oriented model of bureaucracy where everybody, efficiency means the market competition, so everybody has to spend all their time you know, competing with each other, trying to sell each other things within the bureaucracy itself. Um, so that needs to be totally eradicated. Um, I, during the, the disputes over um, the reforms in the UK, which I was involved with all last year, some ways were uh, the student movement there, which had like 50 different occupations going at one time or another, was a, a, a forecast of what happened here. Um, one of the things I proposed, and it shows something about the, the conditioning of the academic mind that we've been so bureaucratized the very idea of civil disobedience within the system is unthinkable. I was saying, well, they're not giving us any money anymore. They cut 80% of funding, um, educational funding. Um, why are we filling out all these forms? In fact, we're filling out more forms than before, even less. Why don't we just take every document that has the word excellence or creativity on it and burn it? Because <laughs> we refuse to fill that out. And, um, and it, I got these blank stares, like, what? Refusal to fill out a form? This is a joke, right? I mean, it's a form. You have to fill it out. I mean, that's what the academia has come down to. And I, I think we need to think about that, that particular aspect of it. We're talking about knowledge production and that process whereby the need to maintain a sort of collective environment where you can come up with creative things so that they um, can then be privatized takes place. Um, importance of local privatization resources. Um, I guess I talked a little bit about that. Um, the, yeah, let me move on to actually instead to, to the individual. Um, because I think that same tension that I, you need to create an environment where people are collective enough to create things so that you can privatize them happens within that dynamic of academic heroism. 
I mean, I remember seeing this and, and being so annoyed by it, actually, in um, around 2000, during the globalization movement, when I first became really actively politicized. Um, that there were all these ideas that came out of Italian revolutionary movements. And I knew enough about it to know that you know, these were moments where, which were especially intellectual and creative because people were talking to each other who didn't normally do so. So you had student activists, you had factory workers, you had intellectuals, you had organ long-term organizers, all sort of sitting in circles, sort of trying to assess a new political situation. They came up with all sorts of interesting, creative new ideas. I mean, situations of, which are really intellectually creative usually happen when you have people who don't normally talk to each other, having the time to do sustained engagement, which um, was happening in Italy in, in the late especially in the early 70s. Um, and when those ideas hit uh, the US, people decided that these will now be the ideology of the globalization movement. People were trying to find an ideology for it. They couldn't say that. They couldn't say that these are ideas that percolated upwards from this vast social movement. They had to find a heroic figure to attach that to. So they, it was all, it became Hart and Negri. Well, Hart wasn't even there. I mean, Negri was at least there. There had to be like some individual hero that you could can absorb all this collective creativity. And in a way, that's like the way that one of the forms of privatization, I'm seeing it happen with me now. It's really disturbing. Um, you know, because I was involved in the globalization movement where a lot of very interesting uh, conversations are taking place. And there were a lot of processes where, which, which took place over long practical engagements over time. Um, which, you know, people will then attribute to a few characters who describe them, um, myself included. I read this insane essay, I mean, uh, with this guy from higher, uh, Institute for Higher, uh, Chronicle of Higher Education, that was it, um, where we're talking about consensus process. And I was telling how I'd been in Madagascar and I'd seen all these people doing it, but I hadn't really completely understood it until I came back to America. The only reason I hadn't completely understood it is in people in Madagascar where they do it, they're really good at it, because they've all been doing it, you know, since since they were five. Um, and I came back to America, we were all totally bad at it and trying to figure it out. So everything had to be objectified. Uh, and I realized retrospectively, oh, that's what that guy was doing. That was a block. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so I was telling the story to the Chronicle of Higher Education guy. And sure enough, uh, you know, two days later, I read the piece, and it's like, David Graeber discovers consensus in Madagascar, teaches it to people. That's how, uh, you know, this is where it comes from in Occupy Wall Street. And it's like, no. <laughs> you know, why did it? This is so pathetic. Um, especially because what, you know, that such gestures do is they, you know, bury the actual labor of creating these things. Which significantly, you know, consensus is thought of now as an anarchist thing, but it, even more it comes out of feminism. Um, it's, a, it's a form of, you know, concrete feminist practice. Which is why so often it's ridiculous that you have these sort of white male academics who say, well, I like this new anarchism stuff, except for that consensus, that's impractical, that I don't want to And this is the one thing that actually does come from practice because it works and has been developed mainly through by women. And you know, there are people like say, oh, here, here's a white male academic, maybe he made it up. Um, so, so I think we really need to, to think about like how those processes work and how they can be resisted. And I try, but, um, but, but that idea of prioritizing the individual, it shows something. Uh, and, and it makes me think of a comment, you know, when I was talking about baseline communism, I was really inspired by something I was reading from Marcel Mauss, um, where he, he said, something he threw out, not in the gift, but in all the, 
everybody reads that one book and nobody reads anything else he, he really does. Uh, but he had, had this one essay where he talked about communism and he says, and proposed this idea, why not just think of communism as any relation based on from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. He said, like, our big mistake is that we assume that there's some kind of opposition between communism and individualism. But in fact, they're mutually dependent. Um, you can only become an individual through communistic relations. Um, and in a way, he was just taking and radicalizing Durkheim's ideas. Um, that was his teacher and uncle. Uh, that, that, you know, we become an individual through society. It's only society that can make us an individual. Um, he's taking it much further. Um, but the question then becomes, how do you create a situation where you can have those communistic relations that make you an individual, that make you a creative person. And, and intellectual creativity always comes from like those kind of networks of sharing where, I mean, every good idea I've come up with uh, traces back to some late night conversation where I have no idea who really came up with what element in it. And I think that's true of most of us. Uh, but, you know, how can we uh, both have a situation where that does make us individual in a way that can't be then privatized and where you don't end up absorbing the labor of others, especially those less, you know, figures that, that, you know, there's a major gender bias in this, but there's also a bias on all sorts of other levels whereby the labor of the people who actually create half that stuff just becomes effaced and made to disappear. Um, and, and, and that heroic person who could then make their ego into some form of currency that could be marketed in one way or another. So how do we, how do we, Foment that creativity and, and keep the individualism without uh, that being privatized, I think is the real pressing question there. Um, in terms of value and values, um, a related question. I've, I've written a lot about this myself, so that, it was interesting. We were talking about the word value, the word values as a coincidence, uh, what is the relation between. Myself, personally, I think it can't be a coincidence, and, and the easiest way to think about it, you know, we talk about economic value and then we talk about values, family values, religious values, um, political ideals, so forth and so on. Well, you look at that, I and mean, to me the first thing that jumps out is, is and people kind of were drawing this out, I think, in the conversation, is, is, is the commoditization. Um, you, are, you talk about value in all those situations where your labor is paid for in some way, either because you're uh, it's wage labor or because you're on a salary or because you're doing it for sell something on the market. Um, you talk about economic value. Now, what are the major situations you talk about values? I mean, the most common one is family value. Family values, right? Um, and what is the major form of uncommoditized labor in our society? Housework. Um, it's not a coincidence. Basically, what the word values pops up when you have forms of production that are not commoditized, they're not paid for, and therefore they're incommensurable. Because, you know, money is that which makes everything sort of liquid and comparable. Um, whereas values are precisely those forms of importance, the ways that we give importance to our own actions, which is what money basically is, um, in a wit system based on commerce and wage labor. Um, it, you know, it's a way that we can compare the value of our own actions in some social medium. Well, values, you're doing the same thing, but you're ultimately saying they're incommensurable. That, whereas, that which is measured by money is valuable because it can be measured and compared. That which is, we talk about values is, uh, are things that can't be, are valuable because they can't. Um, so that, you know, there's no way to make a calculation of to what degree it's okay to neglect your family in pursuit of art. <laughs> These are ultimately incommensurable values. I mean, people do make 
decisions between incommensurable values all the time. That's what life is really kind of about. Uh, but it can't actually be modeled or measured in a formal way. So I think that politically, again, um, like the individual coming out of communism, we can think of that. Um, what is the form where it's, um, where it's we can put ourselves in a situation of sufficient security that we can decide for ourselves what forms of incommensurable value we wish to pursue. And that's the one thing I might throw out when we're thinking about um, our ultimate vision. I remember thinking about this because I was in one of those annoying situations where you're at a dinner party with some rich people and they throw something at you and you're not quite sure what to say or, or you do know what to say and you never get to say it. Um, I was like that once. I was like, Louis Lapham took me to some rich people's dinner party and I was like, I had to get a tie. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> I didn't even own a suit before that. And, and um, so, so I went to this thing. There was some person saying, well, what do you kind of really want? Um, you know, do you want like a situation where everybody has exactly the same thing? Is that the idea? You know, everybody has, you know, precisely the same amount of wealth. Um, total equality and everything. And, and someone interrupted and someone came in with shrimp or something and I never got to answer. But, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I thought about it for a moment and thought, well, the proper answer to that is, like, I want to see a society where that question would be impossible to ask, where it would just be totally stupid. Um, that's what we really want. Um, and, and that's because, actually, I, here's an interesting thing I discovered. I have a friend who's an archaeologist, uh, David Wengro, and um, he told me something that throws off almost everything we thought we knew about the origins of civilization, civilization in the sense of people living in cities. Because, you know, we used to assume that the moment you have a storable surplus, you have cities, then somebody's going to grab it to get ruling classes and all the bad stuff ensues. Turns out that's not actually true. Um, owing to some previously mistaken radiocarbon dates, <laughs> we have now discovered that the initial stages of urbanization that they thought were very brief in places like Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley lasted a very long time. So that there's a thousand years of, of almost systematic egalitarianism um, to the point where all the houses were exactly the same size in both Uruk uh, one the first you know real urban civilization um, and, and what seems to have happened is they actually developed um, a system of, of standardized production where they could create you know vats of oil and wine or um, uh, grain so forth of exactly the same of size um, stamp them with sort of brands. Um, and, and they were terrified by the possibilities because you could measure who was wealthier than who. Um, so they were, you know, for a thousand years they like knew the dangers that could happen here and were heading it off by making sure everybody had exactly the same things. All the public buildings were, you know, uh, were for everybody to be in. So far as they had public works, it was like things like giant public baths and things like that. Um, and, and the buildings were the same size, the grave goods were exactly the same, so forth and so on. But in a way that's exactly the problem. Right? When you have a society where people are creating exactly the same thing for everyone. Um, yeah, that's no problem. Um, you know, the question rather, you know, because it almost makes sense what was inevitably going to occur, and indeed it did. They held it off for a thousand years, which is very impressive. You know. uh, but it did happen. And um, so, so I think what we need to think about value is exactly that. How to think about A, creating that part of communal creativity that we can create these incommensurable forms of value, but also this economy, you know, economy is there to create those forms of security which would make it possible for us to be free to think about what forms of value we really want to pursue. With the assumption that different people are going to really think about 
got totally different ideas about what life is about. Um, and I think that's the real challenge. That's one reason why it's so hard to come up with a single vision. Because what you want to do is create a society where people can come up with their own visions. Um, that's what freedom means, the, the freedom to decide individually or collectively what you think value is and, and how you want to pursue it. So I think that, I would throw that out um, as, as something to think about in the end. Uh, there are multiple forms of value. I mean, um, in a way, I'll, I'll say this uh, as a political point at the end, uh, the most ingenious thing about like creating this elite of the universities is the one place where you can think about experimenting with value, which is why it's so important to them, like right after the crash, to sort of su su submit it even more to the logic of the market, despite the fact that, you know, universities have actually been doing a fairly good job of educating people, and the market had been disastrous and running, uh, and had just been shown to completely collapse. So, like, the response in so many countries, like UK again, the really clear one, was to say now we need to, like, privatize and submit education to the logic of the market. You know, wouldn't the logical thing to do be to, like, make the market more like education, since education that actually functioned and the market had failed. Um, you know, it makes it clear that this isn't a practical uh, decision. This is a political attack on any place where alternative conceptions of value can come out of. And that's what we're experiencing right now. It's not more efficient. In fact, it's horribly inefficient. Um, it's staunches creativity. But, you know, I think that's exactly what they want. They're terrified of, of the imagination. Uh, because the only argument capitalism really has for itself nowadays, they're not really arguing it's a good system, they're arguing that no other system is possible. This can only be maintained by a sort of ongoing war against the imagination. And uh, that's one reason why universities, despite the fact that they do produce so much value for them, are nonetheless the target. Can I put this away? <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks to, thanks to all of our questioners.